Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Today's incredible value-packed podcast episode is brought to you by my friends at Kez's Kitchen, a proud family-owned business that started in 1991 in Kez's Kitchen here in Australia. Today, we're showcasing the Kez's Kitchen Brownie Bars, the perfect anytime snack made from natural ingredients. Available in three delicious flavors, these all-natural and protein boost bars taste ridiculously good. The Kez's Kitchen Brownie Bars are available at all supermarkets in the health food aisle and kezs.com.au. That's K-E-Z-S.com.au. On this week's episode, we are thrilled to welcome back Dr. Rachel Goldman, who specializes in behavior change, weight management, and corporate well-being. She joined us on episodes 38 and 39 of my podcast to chat about the topics of eating behaviors, self-sabotage, happiness, and confidence. So if you haven't heard those podcasts with Dr. Rachel, please go back and listen to them. And due to popular demand, I have brought Dr. Rachel back on the podcast today to talk about setting healthy boundaries, self-sabotage, and self-care. Guys, this is an absolute must-listen episode, so please share the episode with your friends and family on your Instagram stories, and make sure you tag me at The Fitness Dietitian and tag Dr. Rachel, who is at Dr. Rachel NYC on Instagram. And as always, I will be forever grateful if you guys could leave me a positive rating or review in the Purple Apple Podcast app, as this helps my podcast rank higher in the charts, which in turn helps more people to be exposed to it and allows me to help them. Thank you again so much, guys, and let's welcome Dr. Rachel back onto the podcast today. Welcome back, Dr. Rachel, to the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and to be with you again. Yeah, and we're so honored to have you back on. The first few episodes that we did together were incredible. And for our listeners at home, if they haven't listened to them, I believe, Dr. Rachel, they were episode 38 and 39 in series two. So um, I would recommend, highly recommend going back and listening to those ones first if you're new to the podcast. But Anyway, Dr. Rachel, can we start off by telling our listeners, I guess, a little bit about yourself and why you chose to get into the field of psychology? So I'm Dr. Rachel Goldman, a clinical psychologist and speaker in New York City, um, specializing in cognitive behavioral therapy and the mind-body connection. And I'm trying to think how long I've been a psychologist for now. It's actually, (laughs) I've been licensed for more than 10 years, crazy as that sounds. And the story of why I got into psychology is kind of a long story. So I'm not going to go into whole, the whole thing, but I will say that I started out in college for something called dance science and actually never wanted to go into the field of psychology because my mom had majored in psychology and I just didn't want to be like her, which because I was like her, I wanted to not be like her. Uh-huh. Um, and when I was in school, my freshman year, I realized that I was really more fascinated in studying human behavior because I was witnessing a lot of disordered eating in the dance field, in the dance world. So I decided to actually transfer schools to go to a school that had a larger psychology department. And I started out in psychology, researching and studying um, eating disorders and disordered eating and eating behaviors 
um, which I know you and I have a lot of overlap with our clients in that. Um, and then it just kind of snowballed in a way from there. Um, you know, so, so now I'm, you know, a clinical psychologist in New York city. I have a private practice. I do a lot of corporate wellness and a lot of other things as well. And I absolutely love the work that I do. Yeah. And you're you're so passionate about it. And honestly, you help so many people all around the world. So we are so grateful for your time today. I can't thank you enough. Oh, thank you. And thank you for having me. (laughs) Well, let's dive right in. And I know a few of the topics around the podcast that we're going to do today are around setting healthy boundaries, that self-sabotage and that self-care. So let's start off with the healthy boundaries. What is a healthy boundary and what does that what does that look like in our life? How do we set a healthy boundary? Yeah, so I, I think it's such an important topic, especially right now, right? Like so many mm-hmm. people are working from home and we need to be setting these boundaries for ourselves, which is really just establishing limits to protect ourselves, you know, and we could be protecting ourselves physically, emotionally, um, psychologically on, on di- all different levels. And it helps protect us and allows us to also feel more in control of our life, right? So I think especially now working from home, I had a few conversations with clients even about this today, that our home life and our work life is just kind of blended together. And we need to set these limits or these boundaries, or we're going to feel like we're always working. Or I think with a lot of our clients, you know, similar clients that we have, I think also setting boundaries in terms of talking or not talking about their weight right? Or not talking about foods that they're eating or why they're eating certain foods. I think that comes up a lot with my clients. You know, if they're going to visit family or friends and like, you know, somebody's going to ask a question about, you know, maybe weight gain, for instance, during the pandemic and setting a boundary, like we're not going to talk about that or setting a boundary, you know, that I need to say no to this. So, you know, I know you and I discussed it's it's such a broad term, um, Mm -hmm. but we can all be more mindful of kind of where we are in our life right now and, you know, what's working and what's not. And to think about ways that we can set some additional limits to take care of ourselves. And I think that's so important, particularly with, you know, the worldwide pandemic and everything that, you know, everybody's been through in the last year or so. Um, And so you mentioned things like, physical boundaries. Can you give our listeners an example of a physical boundary or us setting a physical boundary versus us setting an emotional boundary? So I think a physical boundary would kind of be like, you know, just simply saying like, no, I'm not going to go to this, right? Like maybe you get invited to do something and it interferes with maybe your self-care or, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe it's something that you just don't feel comfortable doing. So saying no, you know, I often say saying no, often means saying yes to us. So that could be a physical boundary. Like I'm not going to do that. And an emotional boundary may be saying no to something that's like emotionally taxing to us or is going to, you know, have this emotional consequence or emotional feeling afterwards that maybe we feel pulled and in a way that would cause us to maybe perhaps feel overly stressed or, you know, leading to burnout and things like that as well. So an example, maybe if um, we're super overwhelmed at work and we're swamped and we're really, really busy and our boss comes by and dumps something on our desk and says, I need you to do this by the end of the week. If we sort of said, actually, no, I'm swamped right now. I can't do that. Can you ask somebody else? Would that be an example of more of a emotional boundary to protect our sort of energy? You know, I, I think in a way it could be both. Right. Mm -hmm. And I I think if we think about it, like when we say no to things and we set boundaries, 
in a way it's, it's protecting us both physically and emotionally. But yes, I, I would say that particular example would probably be more emotional because it's going to help us decrease our stress level, which is going to help us feel emotionally more stable, more available, less stressed overall. Wonderful. And that was my next question for you in terms of why is setting boundaries so important? And for me, I think the biggest thing that pops my mind is sort of like for that self-care so we don't get walked all over and so we don't feel that kind of regret at the end of the day. A lot of times we say yes to something and then afterwards we're like, oh man, why did I say yes to that? Then we feel super stressed about it. So are there any other reasons why it might be really important to actually practice setting some really healthy boundaries? Well, I I think what you just said was was great. You know, like at the end of the day, we could be like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Like, why did I do that? Um, And I think it also, by setting those boundaries, it gives us more control of our life, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, we're able to say no, asking ourselves the question of what do I want to do versus like, what do I, what should I do? So I think it, it allows us to feel more in control. And when we have times of stress, like for instance, the pandemic, you know, or, or any time of stress, I often tell people focus on what's in your control, right? It is in our control to be able to say no to certain things. Some things, yes, we have to do. It's a responsibility. Maybe we even need to do it and we necessarily don't want to do it, but being able to put those boundaries in place, it protects us from getting to the point of feeling too burnt out, getting to the point where, you know, like our plate is too full, we're on empty And it allows us to take back control of that to then be able to do the things that we need to do for us. So there's that want and that need, but both of them are so important. And I'm just thinking of an example of myself in the past where I haven't set healthy boundaries for myself. And I've, you know, been really overwhelmed with the amount of emails in my inbox and my Instagram DMs. And, you know, there's hundreds of them and I just get super overwhelmed. I'm up until like 11 p.m. on a Friday night replying back to people. And that's on me. I didn't have to do it. I sort of told myself that I should do it. Um, and then I became overwhelmed and burnt out. And it, it made me feel worse after staying up really late and for a couple of days answering all of those DMs and emails versus I could have um, got someone to help me with that. I could have spread it out over a couple of over a couple of weeks time. Um, so that's another example on my sort of side of things where I feel really burnt out when I don't set them. But What else does it, I guess, look like when we don't set healthy boundaries? Maybe for some of our listeners at home who are having a hard time understanding if they're setting boundaries or not, are there any other examples besides burnout that might show you perhaps you're not setting healthy boundaries? So I I think one would be, you know, obviously the burnout with the stress and things piling up and kind of the endless to-do list, right? Another one, you know, if we think about relationships, right? Mm -hmm. We just set boundaries about, like we were saying, maybe those conversations that we have with people or, you know, and that's also similarly like, no, I can't do that. I can't come over also. But I think setting those boundaries about relationships and conversations. And also what I found, you know, when you were just talking about the emails, I was thinking also that setting boundaries can also look like asking for help we don't have to have to do it all. Like it's okay to ask for help to remember that we can't do it all at the same time. But I think, you know, those boundaries can come into play with ourselves. It can be with other people in relationships. It can really be with anything and it can be like delegating, right? Like saying, no, I'm not going to do this, but I'm going to have this person do it. 
Absolutely, yeah. And I think you, you mentioning the fact that asking for help is okay is so incredibly important because often I know that in my past I've seen that as more of a sign of weakness or I, I hit rock bottom until I reach out and I ask for help. And I think, you know, just as we were chatting before the podcast, this pandemic has taught us to sort of take a step back and realize that it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to say, hey, I'm struggling a bit with my mental health or I'm not where I want to be or I feel really overwhelmed. So I actually see that as a strength these days and an incredible almost like superpower, the fact that you're able to stop and ask for help. Absolutely. I I think so too. I think that superpower is to be able to like pause and acknowledge that we need the help and then like to be brave enough, right? To be brave and to ask for help because it it is easier in a way to say, no, 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 I'll do it. I'll do it. And then get burned Mm -hmm. out. So Mm -hmm. I, I actually had a conversation with a client about that today that she was taking on too much. And it's like, we were like, okay, what can you get off your plate? You know, and one thing was like, oh, she can hire somebody to help her with like cleaning the house, for instance, you know, and, and I think that is an amazing feeling to be able to be like, you know what, I'm, I'm at this point where I know I need help and that's okay. And I can spend my time elsewhere doing something else and let somebody else do that, you know, and, or like with your emails, the same thing, but it unfortunately takes time to get there. And the key is and I know this will go into what we're going to talk about next, but the key is to be able to identify when we get to that point, ideally before we get to that point, right? Before mm-hmm. it's, I never like to say before it's too late, but before we're on empty, we want to try to identify it ahead of time and be like, okay, what can I tweak to my schedule? What can I tweak? What can I get off my plate to make room for other things? And if we can identify that early enough and be like, you know what, I'm going to have somebody else take that on, or I'm going to delegate this to somebody else that's going to help keep us going. That's going to help protect us. That's going to help prevent us from getting to that point of burnout. But it's so important to be able to pause and kind of check in with ourselves to be like, what is working and what's not working, right? Maybe it's not working because I need a little bit of extra help. Maybe there's too much on my plate and I need to delegate. But that's the first step is to be able to be aware of that, ideally before we get to the point where we need the extra help. Absolutely, because then that overwhelm feels like it's 10 times more than what it felt like, you know, a few days before then. Exactly, right. And I'd love to ask you, you touched on um, sort of setting healthy boundaries with relationships. And I, I know this is more of a nutrition and health podcast, but I feel like relationships are something that we all have, just like, you know, health and nutrition, we all have it, we all do, you know, eat food and that sort of thing. But just on those relationships, I do have a lot of people reaching out and saying questions as an example, um, you know, I'm trying to eat really healthy for my health, but my partner brings out a lot of junk food and eats it in front of me on the couch and then gets me to eat it too. Would that tie into setting healthy boundaries in that instance where you're trying to exercise and live a healthy lifestyle and eat really well, but your partner isn't supportive of what you're doing and is trying to sort of force you to order takeaway with them or eat the junk food that they're eating? Is that a boundary or is that more on us in that terms of self-sabotage? So I, I think it can be a combination of both also. You know, I, I'm such a believer that when it comes to relationships, any relationship, it needs good communication, right? Communication mm-hmm. is key. And I think if you are trying to change your lifestyle and you're trying to live a healthier lifestyle or change your health behaviors and you live with somebody else or you're you know dating somebody else, you need to have that conversation. You need to say, you know, this is what I'm trying to do. You don't have to do it. You know, like you do you type of thing, but this is what I'm doing. I would appreciate your support. And that could just mean like 
you know, don't bring that food into the house if maybe if it's your trigger food or like you eat it, but don't encourage me to eat it also type of thing. Um, so, I mean, but that looks like boundaries as well, right? So it's communication, but it's communicating a boundary that you want your partner and you to have together. And I think it it all comes down to the way that we communicate that, you know, the, the tone that we use, of course, how we present it. But to be able to express that and to be assertive with what we want is very important because then if, if we don't have that conversation, it's easy to blame the other person when really it's, a, it's about us, right? It's, it's me mm-hmm. that's being affected by them eating it in front of me. So either I can escape that situation if I don't want to be in front of, say, my partner eating that, or I can ask them nicely to just support me in this in whatever way that looks like to you. But of course, that can look like and be a boundary as well. Absolutely. And I think you mentioned something that's so important is that communication, because I can almost see this situation playing out in my head with clients that I've had in the past and they don't say anything, or maybe they say something once and a few weeks later, their partner sort of forgot and they're eating that junk food in front of them. And they just kind of like pass over the bag of potato chips and offer them one. And in their eyes, they see that as something that's kind and caring because they're sharing their food. But in my client's eyes, it's like, they see that as, oh, you're just trying to get me to eat it. You're trying to ruin my progress and all that. But they sit there and they sort of see, then they get angry at that versus communicating, as you mentioned, and just reaffirming that boundary. Actually, no, I don't want some. Remember when we had that conversation um, and I told you it's really important that if you're going to have that, please don't offer me any. Um, So I think, again, that communication is key and we almost have to communicate that again and again and again, don't we? Right. And that's what I was just going to say, you know, something to keep in mind is that we can only control ourselves and how we Mm -hmm. respond and react to situations. We can't control anybody else. So we can communicate to them, like, ideally, it would be best if you don't offer this to me, but they may still do that. And then it's okay. Now, what do we do about it? Do we remind them that this is what we're trying to do? Do we not say anything? Do we just say, no, thanks. I appreciate it. It's a nice gesture. I'm I'm trying to whatever. But that communication, it just goes back to that. And I think reminding people that nobody is a mind reader, right? So Mm -hmm. people do forget and nobody can read your mind to know that that's what you're trying to do unless you communicate it. You know, maybe your partner sees you making changes, but unless you communicate it and say it, they may not really fully understand the connection between me eating something and offering it to you and you eating it or not eating it. Absolutely. So it's really around that awareness in terms of why should we set healthy boundaries and and what healthy boundaries do I need in my lifestyle? And then taking it that next step further and around that communication, even if it needs to be regular and continuous, that's really the key to change, positive change long-term, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. It's so important to be aware of that and to communicate it. Yeah. So important. Just even having this discussion around healthy boundaries, because sometimes just putting a name on it or a label to it, like healthy boundaries really helps people to step back and sort of say, actually, I don't have enough boundaries in my life. Or maybe this is why I'm feeling burnt out. Or, you know, maybe this is why I'm harboring a lot of resentment towards my friends, because every time I go out, they make me drink or they make me do this or this or this, because maybe we haven't communicated or even set those boundaries for ourselves in the first place. Right. And and I think that's another common one that we hear also is with socializing, right? Mm. So obviously, I think more so pre-pandemic, but, you know, going out with friends, I, I hear this a lot with many of my clients that they go out and they feel bad not drinking or they feel bad not sharing the appetizers. So instead of saying anything, they participate in it, which there's nothing wrong, of course, but depending on what your goals are. 
And then they go home feeling bad about it, you know, and, and I kind of joke about it in a way. And I give the example of, you know, if you're at a restaurant, for instance, and the meal is chicken with French fries and you don't want the French fries, you prefer to have the salad or the vegetables, who's going to remember later? Like, is it going to be the, the waiter who rem- who remembers the person that asked for the broccoli instead or the, or the salad instead? Or is it going to be you going home and feeling bad because you wanted to ask for the salad or the vegetables and you felt mm-hmm. bad and you didn't, right? So mm-hmm. remembering, I think, the consequences and how it's going to make you feel. Your friends are probably not going to care if you have one drink instead of three drinks, or if you just have a few bites, but you're the one that's going to feel bad about it, or you're going to feel unpleasant about what you did if it's not what you had anticipated doing. So setting those boundaries and being assertive in that as well, or just not doing it, right? Like, I don't think friends are typically counting how many drinks we're having, you know? So have one and then have water, you know, nobody's going to really be counting. Absolutely. Yeah. And it is so hard because almost we feel like we might disappoint someone or sometimes we get a negative reaction when we do enforce our healthy boundaries as well. But as you mentioned, it's really about how we feel like our friends will get over it. If they want to have a big night and go drinking and we say to them, I'm just going to have one or two and drive home. They might be a little upset in the moment, but they'll get over that if they're still, you know, actually our friends versus, as you said, we'll go home and we're the ones that are going to feel awful later because we didn't set that boundary properly. And we almost self-sabotage ourselves, doesn't it? it? They kind of go hand in hand a little bit. They do. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's important to think about that. And, and as you know, I always say, you know, it's the thought that follows the behavior that matters more than the behavior itself. So like mm-hmm. if you eat the cookie, if you have the drink, like it doesn't really matter. It's just a cookie. It's just a drink, but it depends how you're going to feel about it afterwards and how you're like the thoughts that you're going to have and the self-talk that you're going to have about it is what's going to then determine the next step. And that's what's the most important to keep in mind. Absolutely. Because that negative self-talk, yeah, what we think is what we feel. We feel awful and that's not a great way to live or a great way to feel, is it? Right. So important to, to think about that. Yeah. And I guess that ties us really nicely into moving into our next segment on self-sabotage. I'm interrupting this podcast for a healthy break to share with you today's podcast sponsor, my friends at Kez's Kitchen, a proud family-owned business that started in 1991 in Kez's Kitchen here in Australia. Today, we're showcasing the Kez's Kitchen Brownie Bars, the perfect anytime snack made from natural ingredients, available in three delicious flavors, choc peppermint crunch, fudgy chocolate, and fudgy choc crunch. These all-natural and protein-boost bars taste ridiculously good, and I can personally vouch for them. Kez's Kitchen is a brand that I have loved and recommended to my clients for many years, as they're vegan, gluten-free, contain no artificial colors or preservatives, contain no refined sugar, and of course, are all-natural and Australian-made with fruits and nuts. The Kez's Kitchen Brownie Bars are available at all supermarkets in the health food aisle and also at kezs.com.au. That's K-E-Z-S dot Now let's get back to our conversation. And I guess that ties us really nicely into moving into our next segment on self-sabotage. So we have talked a little bit about it on this podcast before, but for our listeners at home, um, can you give us, I guess, like a little bit of a definition around self-sabotage? What is it and and why do we do it? Because it happens to a lot of people, myself included. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's such a an interesting term because I think so many people use the term and wonder, like, why do I self-sabotage? Um, and, you know, if we kind of break that down, 
It's really things that we do that prevent ourselves from reaching our goals, whatever that is. It could be any behavior that we do that gets in the way of us doing what we want to do. And we sometimes do it because maybe we don't believe in ourselves. Maybe we haven't really thought about how we want to achieve our goals. Maybe we don't have a plan in place. Maybe we haven't thought through the steps that we're going to take. Or maybe we haven't thought about the reason that we want to change that behavior. So I I think, you know, we self-sabotage a lot when we don't have a full understanding of the plan and kind of our goals and where our motivation is and what our why is. So, you know, when, when I talk to my clients, I, you know, I really try to identify what their goal is and why they want to change that goal. That's so important. I mean, why they want to change that behavior. It's so important because that's where we're going to find the motivation. And if we aren't really motivated to change our goal, or if we haven't really thought about why we want to change our goal or the reason isn't strong enough, it's easy to just kind of forget about it, right? So like if our goal is in the back of our head, We might just go about our day however we feel going about our day, but then later we're going to be like, oh my gosh, I just self-sabotaged. Why did I do that? Well, we forgot about our goal. So I I think it really ties in with goal setting and planning a lot as well as motivation, but it's hard. I mean, I I have a client today that we've been, we've been trying for her, you know, to do something and like every week she's like, I haven't done it again. Like what's wrong with me? You know, and I'm like, nothing is wrong with you. But we have to understand, maybe you don't even want to do it. Like maybe what we're talking about isn't something you really want to do. You know, and I, and I kind of said to her, because it was, it was about like doing like the Peloton bike ride. And I was like, you know, it would be like if I told you to run and you hate running, every day you're probably not going to run. So maybe <laughs> the motivation to do it isn't strong enough. You know, and I think that's what we have to think about is like kind of work backwards and be like, what is getting in the way of me doing this? Where is this self-sabotaging behavior coming from? Because our behaviors are related to our thoughts and our emotions. So I think kind of the first step is to recognize that we're doing this, you know, that I I am self-sabotaging, say, and then to recognize the specific behaviors that we're doing and the emotions that lead to those behaviors. And then we can try to switch that and stop the self-sabotaging if we can understand where it's starting from and where like kind of what's causing it. Absolutely. And it's something that is so common in many areas of our life, but particularly with health and nutrition and fitness as well, because I have so many clients who say, I'm so on in every aspect of my life. My relationship's great. My work is great. I'm climbing that career ladder. I'm so rigid and routine with every part of my life. It's fabulous. I cannot for the life of me get my nutrition under control. And we have talked a little bit on this podcast about goal setting and using behavior focused goals versus uh, like number focused goals. So instead of saying, I want to lose 10 kilos, it's I want to eat healthier so that I feel better and I have more energy. So as you mentioned, goal setting is so important, but it's the the type of goal that we have and the value and the importance on that goal as well, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And and I love that you said that about, you know, not being a specific number because it's so important that we focus on the behavior, which is more in our control also. You know, I I think Mm -hmm. when we start feeling that we can't control it is when we feel like a failure, when we give up and when we don't understand why this can't change. So if somebody's so focused on losing the 10 kilos, you know, they're going to start losing motivation where they don't see change 
But when they start seeing change with, oh, wow, I can add a vegetable to my meal, check, I did it, right? I feel accomplished. I feel motivated to keep going. And then we start feeling better. So linking those behaviors to how we feel also is so important. Absolutely. And as we were talking about before, setting those boundaries and communicating those boundaries, because if our goal is to eat really healthy and eat for energy, I guess, and we go to a party and there's a ton of overly processed foods and junk foods and three different types of cake and everyone else is eating it and someone hands you a piece of cake and you're just like, oh, well, everyone else is eating it. I'm going to have it too. And then that cake actually makes you feel worse afterwards because you were super full. You weren't even hungry for it. And all of that sugar kind of drops your energy levels afterwards. That's sort of A, a bit of self-sabotage, but B, a bit of you didn't set that boundary and say to yourself, you know, I actually don't want this. I'm not hungry. Maybe I'll take this home to have later, or um, I don't even really like cake. I'm just going to leave it on the table and save it for something that I really do like later. So they are quite intertwined, aren't they? Yeah. And I think the key with that, right, is to remember that why and to remember Mm. what your goal is. So I I think it's so easy in the moment to just, oh, everybody's eating cake. I'm going to eat a piece of cake and then go home later and think to yourself, what did I do? Right. Like I I just self-sabotaged. When if you're in the moment, if you're able to take that pause and be like, oh, right, you know, I, I, I'm not hungry. I don't want the cake. I can leave it. Maybe if I want it later, it's still going to be there. But setting those boundaries with yourself, but also reminding yourself of what you're doing and why you're doing it and how you're going to feel after. And once again, there's nothing wrong with eating cake. But if you didn't want it or if you just ate it because everybody else ate it and you're going to feel bad about it. And that's where, you know, the problem can really lie. Mm, Absolutely. And in terms of self-sabotage, I get a lot of questions because it's almost like we do the thing to self-sabotage and we don't realize it in the moment until afterwards. And then we're like, oh man, like, why did I do that? I feel awful. I just ruined everything. Does it come back to mindfulness in the moment? As you mentioned, kind of pausing and recognizing what we're doing, because it's almost a little bit too late if we're realizing that afterwards. How do we take back that control in the moment and recognize when we are self-sabotaging because afterwards it's almost too late, isn't it? Right, right. And and I think that's where the planning can really pl- come into play. Um, and with many of my clients, what we do is we kind of talk about anticipating potential difficult situations. Mm-hmm. So I think if you're able to take that step back in advance and say, you know what, I'm going to a party tonight, there's probably going to be cake and alcohol and this and that and all these things. What's my plan? Knowing that plans don't always go as planned, and that's okay. The plan doesn't have to go exactly as planned. But taking that time, it's like putting the work in, putting putting the effort in beforehand is going to make it easier later. We don't want to have to think about it in the moment. We don't want to be like, oh my gosh, what do I do now? Right? Feeling overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. There's cake in front of me. What do I do? You want to already say, okay, you know what? I don't want cake. Or yes, I really want cake. And that's Okay. But if you can take that mindful moment and pause in the moment, you know, that's one thing. And or if you can anticipate in advance that I'm going out, this is what's going to be the situation and this is going to be my plan tonight, then I think that is is the key as well. But it is about being in the present moment and asking Mm -hmm. ourselves, what do I want right now or what do I need right, to nourish myself? How am I going to feel after? And of course, that's a conversation. Like we don't always have time to have that conversation with ourselves. Mm -hmm. But if we have a basic idea of what our goals are, that conversation gets easier. And by having that planning process ahead of time, in the moment, it's easier. We don't want to have to think about it, right? It's the same thing as 
we set an alarm clock to wake up to work out maybe, and we set our clothes up and everything's there. We want to take the thinking out of the equation. When the alarm goes off, I see my clothes. That's right. It triggers the reminder that, oh, I'm working out. It's not, oh, wait, why am I waking up early? What am I going to wear? What workout am I going to do? We don't want to think about it. We just want to do it, right? So we have to kind of put the work in in advance to make it easier in the moment or be mindful, right? And be able to take that pause. I think it's one or the other. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And because the more we think about it in the moment, the more overwhelming it can become, right? Because you're right, if you're waking up and it's, you know, really, really early morning. And if you're like me, you're not really a morning person. If you're like, what am I going to wear? I don't have any clean clothes. It's raining. What what workout can I do? I don't have any weights around. That overwhelm just becomes, it leads into that self-sabotage because we haven't planned. And then we feel overwhelmed. And then we're like, I don't know what to do blow it. I'm just going to do nothing. And that's the same with nutrition. If we go out with our friends and everyone's got cocktails and pizza and we're like, I really want to eat healthy, but we haven't planned for it. We're going to get in that moment and be like, oh my God, I have no idea what to do. I I don't, haven't even looked at the menu. I don't want to be the only one ordering salad. And then they're just like, whatever, I'm going to do what my friends do and I'll start again tomorrow. Exactly. Yeah. And that goes back to that whole goal set, goal setting and planning, right? Mm -hmm. Like with a little bit of a plan or with a little bit of planning, we can make those things happen. But if you if you go into a situation and the only option is pizza and you wanted to eat healthier, then what are you going to do? You know, mm-hmm. you're either not going to eat or you're going to eat the pizza. What's your other choice? But if you looked in advance or planned for it, then you have options. And I think that's the key, right? It's about having options and knowing that you have those options as opposed to feeling stuck and overwhelmed. And then like, oh, I don't know. I guess I'm just going to do this now. And then later feeling bad about it. Absolutely. And uh, this brings me an example of a client that we were chatting through and she knew she was going out to an Italian restaurant and she wanted pizza. She didn't want to be the odd one out. And we had pre-planned for her to have two slices, a big side salad, and she was going to have one drink and drive home. And she was going to drive there, even though it was really close, um, she could have walked there um, and we made her drive. So she sort of had to drive her car home as well. So again, that's planning. She had a plan going into it and she felt really great. And she was able to come out of that. And she told her friends as soon as she got there, this is what I'm doing. So again, she, she, she set that boundary, which then allowed her to be able to follow through with her behaviors without any guilt. Or if somebody said anything, just have another couple of drinks. It's fine. She's like, no, no, I'm just having one today. I'm driving home. Remember, I, I mentioned that beforehand. So right. I think yeah, that I, everything I think that's t- ties in, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. And, and even setting that boundary at the beginning, it's also in a way asking for support, right? It's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. saying it out loud to then ha- make it accountable, to make you accountable. Yes. And also then your friends could say, oh, I thought you said you only wanted one drink. You know, you have to drive home. So, you know, I think getting that support and asking for support is also really important. Absolutely. Yeah. Because that, they're our friends, right? And they might want to do different things to what we might want to do, but if they're truly our friends, they'll support us in the things that we communicate are really important to us. So I think that's great. And it comes back to what we mentioned at the beginning, asking for help is okay. And it's almost like a superpower because we're only human. We can't do everything ourselves and our willpower wears down eventually, doesn't it? Exactly. I mean, I think especially, you know, with, with stress and everything going on, you know, we get, when, when things are building up and there's a lot of stress, you know, we start getting irritable, we start getting tired, you know, it's harder to say no. So it's so important. And, and I think that actually probably ties in really nicely to, you know, talking about self-care, which mm. I know we also wanted to talk about, but, you know, really needing to take care of ourselves to the point that we don't get to that point and asking for help 
and doing those things. It's it's really all related. Mm, and it's such a small thing. It's not like you're saying, hey, can you come over on Saturday and help me move my entire house? It's, <laughs> hey, um, can you just make sure that I only really want to have one drink tonight because it's really important for me and I'm happy to come out and enjoy myself, but two or three or four drinks is going to make me feel awful and I really want to get up early and exercise tomorrow. So like, it's very different way of, I think sometimes we think asking for help is a huge thing from somebody else, but asking for help can be the smallest thing, can't it? It doesn't have to be this enormous impact on somebody else's life. Exactly. It can be something exactly like what you said, you know, just asking for that, you know, a little bit of that support, you know, it, it doesn't need to be anything major and, and it takes, but it takes courage, right. To even mm-hmm. ask for that and say like, this is what I want and I'm enlisting you to help me, you know, like, could you help me with this? And, and people, if, if they love us, if they support us, you're going to be happy to do it. I love nothing more than that. Yeah. When a friend reaches out to me and says, Hey, or a client reaches out to me and say, Hey, can you just keep me that little bit more accountable today? And I had two clients reach out to me this morning and one really wanted to be held accountable in terms of their steps because they recognize that it's something that they haven't done really well the last couple of days. They've been super busy, really, really um, immobile, just sitting in front of their desk all day. And another client said, Hey, we have a work lunch. Um, I'm just, I'm really worried and I'm really concerned about what I'm going to choose because it's typically not great choices. So we really talked through, we gave her three separate options um, because she didn't really know what there was and she felt a lot better about that. So I think that reaching out for support, that accountability, that planning ahead, setting the healthy boundaries, like it all, it, it all ties into each other, but also it's, it's hard work, isn't it? And I think that just saying, waking up on a Monday morning and going, I'm going to lose weight this week. It's not enough, is it? And that's why so many people can't make changes because it is hard work and it does require a lot of dedication and a lot of planning. And for a lot of people, it's not the top priority. So it's the thing that falls down first. And it all comes down to that schedule and that routine, right? It's like, if we talk about like how to lose weight, if that's what somebody's goal is, it's like, we can't just wake up and expect to lose weight, right? It it does take Mm -hmm. that work, but it also takes the planning and the thinking about it and the behavior change so it, it takes, you know, all of that and, and also the support and the accountability, but it's not impossible. You know, I, I think when people think about all of these changes, it can feel so overwhelming, but if we just want to break it down and think of one small change, right? Like for you and your client, it was like, okay, you know what, let's discuss the lunch and have options. And I think that is very empowering, right? Knowing that you have options and have having thought out the options as opposed to, I'm going here and this is what I have to eat. No, you know, like you can eat other things mm-hmm. and talking through that is very empowering for people. Absolutely. And I guess when, as you mentioned, like it can become quite overwhelming when we think of all of these things we have to do, but that's where I see self-care tying in really, really nicely here. And I always say to my clients, like, it's so important to nourish your mind first and then your body after. When I talk about soul foods or our favorite foods or junk foods or whatever we want to call it, we don't just want to go and grab the chocolate bar when we're feeling emotional. We want to nourish our mind and body first, and then we can have a little bit of that food. So it ties in really nicely with the emotional eating that a lot of people struggle with as well. But why is self-care so important, Dr. Rachel? And why do so many of us skip over it, myself included? Why do we put it at the bottom of the priority list when it is so important? Well, you know, it's so funny because I I think it comes down to first how we define self-care. You know, Mm -hmm. I think if we think about self-care, maybe before this past year, people used to think self-care was like going to the spa, right? Or going to a five-star resort or getting a massage. Self-care actually is anything that we do for ourselves, right? It could be eating, 
right? That is a form of self-care. It could be taking time out of our day to take a shower. That is self-care. So I think if we remember that, you know, that we have to put ourselves first and make ourselves a priority or we are going to get burnt out, right? There goes that word again with burnout. But it's so important. And I like to think of self-care also as preventative care. So I think we have, in a way, two forms of self-care. One is the preventative care, the things that we do every single day as part of our routine to help us manage our life a little better, help us manage stress. And the way I like to explain it is like stress builds up throughout the day. And if we have these kind of daily check-ins and participate in some form of self-care, we lower that stress level just a little bit. So things don't kind of feel or get to the point of feeling unmanageable. And then we also have the self-care that's like, wow, I really feel like I'm running low and now I need to do something. So there's, I think there's both and both of them are so important, you know, so doing those daily things, if it's breathing, if it's having this daily check-in, if it's, you know, taking a walk, whatever it is, is going to help us feel more in control and feel more like we can manage whatever's thrown our way. And that I think is a great place to start. It's like, what can we do today for us? Because if we don't take care of us, we can't be available or take care of anyone else, right? Like I always say, if, if I don't do my self-care, I can't be available to my husband, mm-hmm. to my son, to, you know, to anybody or to my clients. And that's me having to put me first, but in a way it's putting me also, right? Like we have to be mindful of that because we can't pour from an empty cup, right? Like our cell phone battery gets low and we, we charge it. Well, we have to be mindful of when we're getting low and we have to be constantly giving ourselves these little boosts and these recharges as well. What would you say to the moms out there and the dads who experience that sort of that guilt and it's like, I don't have time. I have to look after my family. I do everything for everybody. And at the end of the day, there's no time left for themselves. And I know it's a, it's an easy thing to say. You can't pour for an empty cup, look after yourself first, but that guilt is so real for so many people. And they're like, I actually just don't have the time in my day. How can we help those people to realize how incredibly important self-care is. And it can be just two, three minutes of deep breathing or, you know, an extra two minutes in the shower, just, you know, doing some positive reframing of your thoughts or something like that. Exactly. And that's what I was just going to say that I tend to tell people, you know, think of it as finding these little pockets of time throughout the day where you can breathe. And, you know, like right now we're all washing our hands a lot, say, you know, while you're washing your hands, every time you're washing your hands, take a few deep breaths while you're cooking dinner, be mindful, make it a mindful moment, do some deep breathing, you know, breathe in, you know, the different flavors and all of these things, or, you know, you're in the shower. Nobody's going to question if you're in the shower for two extra minutes, you know, do some deep breathing or positive thinking or whatever you need to do. So I think remembering that self-care doesn't need to be an hour long massage or an hour long break or a nap. We can all find pockets of time And this is the one time that I actually think multitasking can work because in a way, what we call it is these micro practices, like while we're washing our hands, while we're in the shower, while we're cooking, do some deep breathing. It doesn't need to be five minutes of I'm doing nothing and I need complete silence. It can be while I'm doing something else. And that's just a good place to start. Hopefully then we can build in more of that. You know, I think now with people working from home, I tend to tell people that we lost that commute right? Well, commute 
time was actually self-care. It was a transition time for us to kind of close one chapter of our life and be Mm. like, I'm going to put work aside and I'm going to prepare my mind for what I'm about to walk into with the family. But we don't have that anymore. And now we close the computer and like, here I am. So I always tell people to bookend their days with this transition time. And it can be five minutes, right? So like close your computer. You don't have to tell anybody you're done with work yet, right? Take an extra five minutes or 10 minutes as if it was your commute, although probably people's commute was more like an hour before, right? (laughs) But it can be literally five minutes to decompress because if we don't do that, we're going to walk into the next door and not know what we're going to be walking into. And our stress level may be already so high that now Mm -hmm. we blow a fuse, right? Mm -hmm. Now we're irritable. Now we can't manage it. So we want to be constantly bringing that stress level back down so we're prepared for whatever is thrown our way. And then we can manage what's going on. And that's literally by finding these pockets of time. We can all do that. I I know it sounds easier than it is, but it really is. If we just think about the next time I'm washing my hands, the next time I'm in the shower, I'm going to do an extra few deep breaths at the same time. I love those tips. They're so, they're so wonderful and so practical. And um, it reminds me of an example that I had one of my clients was um, a busy single mom and that stress and that overwhelm and that mom guilt was something that she felt on a daily basis. And I remember we talked about what's the most stressful thing as part of your day or part of your routine. And she used to say to me, when I feel like I'm a taxi driver, I get all the kids, I get them into the car, they're screaming, they're yelling, we're running late, I'm biting traffic. And so we came up with two little um, self-care moments every time she got in the car. So before before she turned the car on, she would practice one or two moments of gratitude and the kids would do it as well. And even if the kids were driving oh, her insane, that. she's like, I'm grateful for my healthy kids or I'm grateful that I have the ability to drive my kids to their sporting appointments or whatever it is. And then when she got to the place she was going, she'd turn the car off and she'd practice just 30 seconds of deep breathing. And again, she'd try to involve the kids in that as well. So I think linking those self-care moments, as you mentioned, to things that we do routinely, like washing our hands and, and driving our kids around can be really helpful as well. If not like anything, we just get to the end of the day and we've forgotten about it. And the day rolls into another day, rolls into another week, rolls into another month until we hit burnout. And as you mentioned, it's almost too late then. Exactly. And that's why we want to be doing this on a daily basis to try to prevent that from happening. Mm-hmm. And I love the transition between sort of work from home life and home life, because if you don't have that transition, you go from a stressful work environment, you walk into the kitchen and the kids and the hubby and everyone's all over you being like, I'm hungry. I, I need a shower. Help me my homework. And it's just that stress is even more heightened, isn't it? And the willpower reduces down and no wonder you want to go and inhale the entire pantry because we haven't done any of that self-care to bring those emotions down that little bit. Right. Yeah. And and I think we, we hear that a lot, right? That, you know, I, I'm just thinking of a few of my clients also that after that stressful day and then after the kids are asleep and the husband is asleep or the partner is asleep, I have clients that then sit on the couch, they'll go to the pantry and they'll get food because it's like, whew, I can finally breathe. Right. And then they find comfort yes. in the food because they finally have that moment to themselves And really, if we do those little things all day throughout the day, it might not feel as heavy, right? Like at night, it might be like, okay, I don't need this alone time now because I had these packets of time. Maybe I want this alone time. Maybe I want to sit in front of the TV and watch TV, but maybe you won't need the cookies or you won't need it quite as much. And I think that's where the self-care really can come into play too, where, you know, it's like, okay, I want to take this break versus I need to take this break. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that emotional eating is something that we talk about a lot on this podcast. And I always like to say to clients, it's okay if sometimes when you're feeling stressed and overwhelmed that you want a glass of wine or you want a couple of pieces of chocolate, that is okay, but it can't be our only coping strategy and it can't be our only form of self-care. And when it is, that's where we run into a lot of problems. If the only form of self-care we have is a glass of wine every night, or the only form of self-care is a bag of potato chips. We need, as you mentioned, a lot of other self-care tips to to keep us going and keep our bodies and our minds healthy, don't we? We can't just have one form of it. Right. Yeah. And that brings up what I always talk about, about my coping toolbox, right? Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. it's really like, if we think of self-care, it can also be ways that we manage stress or coping mechanisms. So, you know, and I, and I tend to say the same thing about emotional eating that it's okay to emotionally eat. Sometimes we all do it, right? Mm -hmm. It's a human behavior Mm -hmm. where we're kind of programmed to do it in a way, but it can become problematic when it's your only tool, when it's your Mm -hmm. only coping mechanism that can become problematic. So we want to have options. We want to have a toolbox full of coping mechanisms or coping tools readily available to us that we can pull from when we need them. And eating can be one of them, but we don't want it to be the only one. Absolutely. And I saw your coping toolbox. I think it was on Instagram and I loved it. It was one of my favorite posts of yours that I've seen and it described the outer resources and the inner resources. So can you let our listeners know um, what the difference is between our outer resources in our coping toolbox and the inner resources and why it's important, as you mentioned, to have both and that diversity so we don't just have that one coping strategy, which you know essentially doesn't really serve us um, in the long run for a lot of people. Right. Yeah. So what I tend to recommend is that we have at least three tools in our toolbox. Obviously we can have more, but at least three. And the reason for that is that one may not be available to us when we need it. And out of the three, at least one should be an inner resource. So what I mean by that is something that we don't need anybody else for or anything else for. So for instance, if I say my coping mechanism is to go outside and take a walk or to go running and it's raining out, what am I going to do? If that's my only one, I'm stuck, right? Like the stress is just going to keep building up if I can't go outside. Well, then if I say my one or maybe my second one is to call a friend and that friend isn't available when I'm at this heightened state of stress, then what am I going to do? That's exactly why at least one is something that we don't need anybody else for or anything else for. That can be something like deep breathing, right? Diaphragmatic breathing, for instance. That can be meditation. That can be mindfulness. You know, it could be journaling, although I think journaling can be an inner or outer because you, in essence, need pen and paper or your phone or something to write it down. Um, But something where you really don't need anybody else for. And really the inner, I I also like for the reason that nobody needs to know you're doing it either. Mm -hmm. So for instance, you know, if you're in a meeting that's very stressful or if you're about to give a presentation, like, like I give so many, you know, presentations right before I step on the stage, you know, this was of course pre-pandemic now Mm -hmm. before I hit record or or show my face, I take a deep breath, but nobody needs to know because it's something I'm doing internally. And what I'm doing is I'm lowering that stress level as preventative in case I get stressed. Now in the moment, if I feel stressed, once again, nobody needs to know if I'm taking a deep breath. It's not like, oh, excuse me, I need to go on a run now, right? <laughs> it's something that we can do in the moment. No one needs to know. I can you know, maybe do imagery for a second. I can think of my happy, safe place. Um, and that's why having those inner resources is also so important. And in addition to that, not every coping mechanism works for every occasion. 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes we need a combination of them, right? So maybe sometimes I need to take a run, but before I can even get to that point, I need to take a deep breath and pause and be like, what's going on right now? Okay. I did a body scan. I need to go running. I have a lot of energy. I need to get out or something like that. Um, so sometimes it's a, a couple of them, a combination of coping mechanisms or tools that we use. And sometimes, like I said, it's just not feasible. Like we can't just stop a conversation and go on a run. So, you know, deep breathing or mental imagery or something would work better in that situation. So that's why it's important to have more than one, ideally at least three. And one of those being something internal that we don't need anybody else for or anything else for. Oh, I love that. That is, that's so helpful, so practical. And I know is going to change some people's lives because as you mentioned, a lot of us just have that one default strategy that we use. And for the majority of us, it's not helpful. It's, you know, the default strategy is yelling at our kids when we become too stressful. The default strategy is to get so overwhelmed with work that we do nothing and we go and sit on the couch or start cleaning or do something that isn't the priority, but we're so overwhelmed. So I think it's so important to have multiple things. And one of my inner resources um, has always been gratitude. Whenever I feel stress or overwhelmed, I flip that negative into the positive by just saying, you know what, I am so grateful to still be employed. I'm so grateful that, you know, sometimes on my podcast, I get negative feedback for talking really quickly, but at the same time, I'm grateful that I get to podcast and chat with experts like yourself all around the world. So for me, gratitude has always been just an absolute game changer. And I think it's a great tool to add to our inner resource toolbox, isn't it? Absolutely. And and I love that, right? Because that's flipping the the switch, right? In terms of our mental, you know, the way that we think and the way that we talk to ourselves. So I think that's great that you do that. And it's a great one to add to our inner resources for sure. Would you recommend people like writing it down? So I think in your Instagram picture, I remember it was in two circles. There was like an inner circle and an outer circle, and then maybe popping that up somewhere visible, such as like the kitchen pantry or the bathroom mirror. So that we're again, reminded of our different tools in our toolbox, right? Yeah. I, I think, you know, when we can visualize it or when we can write it down and then see it, it's a great reminder, right? So I think at the Mm -hmm. beginning, as we're making this shift, as we're making these small changes to our life and adding these things to our lifestyle, it's hard to remember in the moment, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, oh my gosh, what did I say I was going to do with this situation? So if we're able to see it, it, once again, it takes the thinking out and takes the workout in the moment, but eventually with practice, it's going to become so automatic that you don't need it. So I do think it's important that we practice these coping mechanisms and these tools at times when we don't necessarily need them. So that's where the self-care comes in, right? We can practice that gratitude. We can practice the breathing exercises when we don't necessarily need it. So then when we do need it, we're an expert at it. Like, I don't even need to think about it. Like, this is what I do at this time because I know how to do it, right? So for somebody like the breathing exercises might be a new practice for them. So maybe they want to practice it. The gratitude, same thing. Maybe somebody's not used to flipping that switch and flipping that narrative. So being able to practice it when we don't need it is really key. And then it just will become automatic and part of your lifestyle. Absolutely. Because if you're only doing it when you need it, again, a new habit feels overwhelming. And what we're trying to avoid is that overwhelmed feeling, isn't it? Exactly. Right. And in the moment, we won't, we don't want to be like, oh my gosh, what, what did I say I was going to do? Mm-hmm. Right. We want to, because then it's not going to work. 
like then our automatic is going to be whatever we're used to doing, which maybe wasn't working for you before. Absolutely. Oh, Dr. Rachel, you've been a wealth of knowledge and provided honestly some life-changing tips on this podcast. So I cannot thank you enough um, for coming on and sharing all of your expert knowledge with our listeners and myself. Thank you so much. (laughs) Oh, thank you. I I always love chatting with you and and joining your podcast. It's always, you know, such a treat. Absolutely. And you mentioned that you are, of course, super, super busy at the moment. You've got a bit of a wait list, but um, as I understand, you do do online consultations. So where can people um, reach out to you, potentially book in with you in the future um, and of course, follow you on social media? Yeah, thank you. So my social media, my Instagram handle is Dr. Rachel NYC. And my website is the same, drrachelnyc.com. And on there, people can reach out to me um, for either therapy or consultation or or anything. Um, I always like to remind people also that Instagram and social media is not therapy, but if people want to DM me with questions, I'm always happy to get back to people with either resources or referrals or, you know, just information. And I always love to connect with people anyways. Um, so yeah, it would, it would be great to connect with, you know, anybody who, who wants to reach out. Absolutely. And you do listeners remember Dr. Rachel does a lot of um, wellness speaking as well. So if you work with large corporations that want to get in some expert guests and you found this podcast really helpful, which I'm sure you did. Um, Dr. Rachel also does um, event and guest speaking as well. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Wonderful. Well, thank you again so much for joining us back on the podcast. Um, we couldn't thank you enough for your time. Thank you.